following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, boys and girls, I'm sure that you're all excited about tomorrow morning that you're going to get up and do schoolwork. Is that right? No, you're going to get up and have family traditions, wonderful times together, family gathered together for times like this. And it is a great time for family traditions and for celebration. It's a time that the world calls Christmas, but in fact, its proper name is the Advent. It is the Advent, it's not Christmas. Christmas was invented first by the church and then taken over by the world. And it has then been filled with all types of uh, additions to uh, the Advent. Now, I'm not opposed to a family, having family traditions and having good times together. But let's don't confuse the traditions of Christmas with the Advent. Because it's one of Satan's ways to direct our attention away from the glorious event that the church historically celebrates this time of the year. Now we don't know when our Savior was born. Uh, the church actually picked December 25th because of winter solstice uh, and to try to move the, the pagans who were coming to the church away from paganism so they gave them this date but regardless of the time the date of the advent it is one of the most significant events in all of the history of mankind and we should think about it not just in seasons of the year we need to be thinking about advent really every day and that's part of the purpose, the goal where I want to bring you today and your thoughts and your affections as we look at uh, Galatians. We're really going to look at verses 4 to 7 of Galatians chapter 4. Now, most of you know that Paul wrote this book of Galatians to counter a false gospel. There were Jews professing to believe in Christ who were adding to salvation by faith alone uh, the need of Gentiles to become Jews, to be circumcised and to observe Jewish ceremonies and practices if they truly wanted to know their sins were forgiven. And this was uh, grievous to the Apostle Paul. He, he calls a curse on these people. And after establishing his own credentials and authority, he declares the, the glorious doctrine that justification is by faith alone. That as we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God does two things for us. He pardons our sins and he constitutes us legally righteous in his sight. Now, Paul then has to interact with the law. And he does this in chapter 3, showing the purposes of the law were never to annul the promises of the covenant that were given to Abraham, but it was to train the church. And he focuses on that particularly now in these first uh, four verses of, uh, or three verses of Galatians chapter 4, where he takes the analogy of a child, age of you children, who is going to inherit a great estate, going to be very wealthy and, and powerful. 
But as long as the child is in what we call in law his minority, before he comes to the appointed age, you really can't tell any difference in between the child and between the servants who raised the child, the nanny or, or the slaves or, or the servants or whatever. Uh, that was the state then of the old covenant church. And what Paul is saying is they had these extra things, these ceremonial laws and principles as part of the way that a wise father was regulating their lives to prepare them for the fullness of time when the Savior would come and they would enter into their inheritance. Now the problem was the Gentiles wanted to go back to the state of minority. They if they went under the law, they would become just like the old covenant children, and they would not live in the fullness of their inheritance. And so what Paul is doing with our text is showing that, no, we've been delivered uh, from all things, and we're brought now as mature sons and daughters of God into the inheritance. We're no longer slaves or under slaves. No, we're the adopted children of God with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Well, that's what's going on here then. And so what I want to do is show you from verses 4 through 7 that at God's appointed time, the Son of God came that he might make us by his work the sons of God. At the appointed time, the Son of God came that he might make us sons of God by his perfect work. So we're going to consider four things from verses 4 through 7. The time of the incarnation, the nature of the incarnation, the necessity of the Incarnation, and the purpose of the Incarnation. I begin then in the very simple statement. In the first part of verse 4, you get the contrast. So here's the Old Covenant people in their minority, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. We have here a major dividing line in the history of redemption. Where Paul is saying, uh, at a particular point in history, and the history of redemption, God did this most stupendous, mysterious, miraculous thing. He sent forth his son. The word for time here has to do with uh, epics of time, uh, or a succession of time, or a climax of time. It's used uh, in Christ's parable in Matthew 25, 19. After a long time, the master came and settled account with them. It's used of Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah, giving birth. And when it says that the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. So we've got periods of time. We've got appointed time. And that's the idea here. When the fullness of time is when the appointed time, I like to say to the students, it's when the prophetic alarm clock goes off. That's what happens. The alarm go off this morning. Well, here, this great alarm goes off. That's the fullness of time, you see. It's God, in his, again, glorious providence, uh, planned to stretch out this unfolding of the revelation of redemption for 4,000 years. But in that time, it's like a, a beautiful mosaic where piece after piece is there, or one of these big puzzles some of you work on at Christmas time. And piece and piece is filled in, and the picture gets bigger and bigger as God is leading the church through these covenant administrations uh, from the first covenant of grace made with Adam and Eve after they fell, right up through Noah and Abraham and, and Moses and the people and David. 
and the promised Messiah. And prophecy after prophecy, uh, uh, not just about what he would do, but when he would come, what it would be like when he would come. It was so clear in Daniel that Anna and Simeon and others by the Holy Spirit recognized that in their lifetime, the Messiah was going to come. Now understand, Scripture does not tell you about that second coming. Anybody that tells you it's going to be in your lifetime is lying to you. It might happen, but they don't know when it's going to happen because the Bible says they don't know. But the, the faithful were being prepared by the Holy Spirit. And in the fullness of time, this great alarm went off. But now in God's wisdom, not only was he preparing the prophetic time, preparing the church through the history of redemption, but our wise and sovereign, powerful God is preparing the culture and the world. He causes a, a godly man named Joseph to be betrothed to a young girl whom he had most wonderfully sanctified, Mary, the virgin wife of Joseph. He caused Caesar to cause, uh, uh, send out a decree uh, so that Joseph had to go to Bethlehem and, and there to fulfill the promise that the Savior be born in Bethlehem. It was through Augustus Caesar. And then there was, of course, the, the Pax Romana. Uh, the world was a safe place, so to speak, in those days. The civilized world, the Roman Empire, brilliant travel system of highways and boats, a common language, so that even when people uh, would speak their native tongues, that they, um, so many people knew Greek, and you, you could converse and converse in Greek. You see, it was a time that God prepared in beautiful wisdom. So when you read fullness of time, let your heart leap with joy. It's absolutely fantastic. And then apply it to yourself, you see, my friends. And this is what God, uh, each of us, we all have our time. We have a time that the Lord God is regulating in our lives according to a sovereign decree. It wasn't just the, the life of the incarnate Savior written in God's book. Uh, David tells us in Psalm 139, our lives are written in God's book as well. So don't complain about it the circumstances of your life. But trust God, because he is directing every single thing to your well-being and to his glorious purposes of redemption and the coming of the kingdom. Yes, even in our lives, we live in the fullness of God's time. And then understand, although we don't know when it will be, that there'll be one other advent, and that will be when our Savior returns with the shout of the archangel and blaring of trumpets and all the earth made bare before him. He raises the dead. And so we long for that time then as well. As we are a pilgrim people now, living in the reality of the first advent, but looking for the final advent. So the time of the advent, which simply means advent, then the coming to. Well, what is this coming to? Well, we see this in uh, the nature of the incarnation. So I'm using two strange words, advent, coming to. That one's simple. Incarnation is also simple. It simply means in the flesh. And so what we have here explained by the Apostle Paul is that God the Son took to himself a human nature. Notice the words in verse 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now, we've had a lot of births in our congregation. 
And we've had birth announcements, although now they mostly happen on uh, email or some other place. But sometimes you get a formal one. But I've never read a birth announcement that said God sent forth uh, Rebecca into our lives or God sent forth uh, this person. Into, no, we, so somebody was born. The very language that God sent forth is expressing to us the eternity of our Savior and the equality that he has with the Father. Don't let sent forth confuse you. God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had an eternal agreement uh, by which God the Son volunteered to be sent forth by the Father and as we see, take to himself a human nature. But stop and meditate on those words that God sent forth his Son uh, from the eternal palace. Uh, there, uh, the Son leaves on this mission that he's been given by the Father to come and redeem his people. And thus, the language sent forth reminds us of the eternal preexistence, eternally, uh, of our Savior. And it's wonderfully pictured for us in uh, John chapter 1, where we have there put together both his deity and his um, taking humanity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. There's this glorious statement of the eternity of the Son of God who was sent forth into the world. The fullness of God. He was, uh, he was the Word of God. The wisdom of God. He was alongside God as an equal because he was and is God. So Paul will say in Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or Colossians 2.9, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So he could say those mysterious words to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's one of the reasons we don't want to make images of our Savior in his earthly life. Because if you've seen him, he says, you've seen the Father. But he sent forth his Son, born of a woman. Now, John goes on and tells us of this mystery in verse 14. The Word, who's identified as the eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And there this ties this in to the whole history of redemption. In the tabernacle and then the temple, God tabernacled amongst us. Now God himself comes in the flesh to tabernacle among us. Uh, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And so, uh, mystery of mysteries. Uh, Paul calls it such in, in 1 Timothy 3.16, the son sent forth was born of a woman. Anyway, he didn't, I mean, God could have made a human nature. That would have been useless for us. No, he, he had to be a descendant of Adam, you see. Adam uh, was the first covenant head. And every one of us descends from Adam. You work on your family genealogy. You know, I'll give you a lot of money if you ever work your way back to Adam. Uh, but we know from the body, uh, the Bible, and then, of course, you got help. You can go to Noah. And you got a shortcut there. And then you got a bunch of names uh, between Noah and Adam. But uh, we're all born descendants of Adam. 
and Adam was in a covenant with God, and Adam broke that covenant. And so if someone is going to come, as we'll see more fully in a moment, and undo the damage of Father Adam, he had to have not just a human nature, but a human nature from Adam. See, that's the importance of virgin conception and birth. So he was born not just of any woman. He was born of this most remarkable woman. Again, sometimes in our pushback against uh, Romanism, uh, we demean the virgin. And I don't think she is a perpetual virgin. But we demean this woman. When in fact, the Bible says her name will be blessed forever. What a remarkable woman this was. A teenager more than likely. And prepared by the Holy Spirit to be so godly <laughs> that the father would entrust his son incarnate into her care and to Joseph's care, whom God also prepared to rear this baby. And so he was wonderfully conceived in her of her. So he became a partaker of human nature and a partaker of Davidic nature, physically speaking, because it's as the seed of David that God promised the Messiah would come and deliver his people. And so the nature of the incarnation, it is so remarkable that God takes to himself a human nature and comes as the God-man. And our shorter catechism, two questions, 21 and 22, give a great summary. You just write that in your Bible, right beside verse 4, shorter catechism, 21 and 22. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continues to be God and man, and two distinct natures and one person forever. Now that's very important language as well. It's historical. It goes back to Chalcedon. That this is the best summary of what it means that God sent forth His Son into the world to be born of a virgin. That there was one person, and we'll see a little more of the importance of that. And this one person had two natures. He had a divine nature and a human nature. He wasn't a human being. You understand that? He was one person who had both natures. And the divine nature is the controlling factor. But it's a true human nature in every respect like ours, except he had no sin. And then 22, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Do you see why Paul would call this unconfessedly a mystery? What a mystery. It's the most glorious supernatural event recorded in the Bible. The Advent. Don't get confused this time of the year, okay? The Advent. God coming, taking to himself... A human nature because of his great love for sinners but also for his own glory as we move along so we've seen the time of the incarnation and we've seen a bit of the nature of the incarnation now why the necessity of the incarnation well you'll notice there in verse 4 and 5 that he was born of woman under the law so that and that's a purpose statement he might redeem those who were under the law 
I've already mentioned that he had to have a human nature because uh, of Adam. He comes as the second covenant head. And that then is further spelled out by the fact that he is born under the law. Responsible then as the second covenant head. As the last man, as the second Adam, responsible then to fulfill the law. And he fulfilled that law in his, what we call his active obedience. And that is by perfectly obeying all the commandments of God that were appropriate for human people. Uh, mankind. So that uh, the, the moral law, obviously, but the ceremonial law, the civil law. Um, now, what's remarkable, remarkable about this is, remember, he's the lawgiver. The law is who he is. Is that this naturally in his divine nature he would keep the moral law. He would love the positive law. But uh, he puts himself under the law as one obligated to fulfill it and to bear its curse. Not because he broke it. Remember we sang. It's not sacrifice on the altar that God looks for but the perfect obedience. In other words, the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. And so you notice that he was made under the law to fulfill the curse of the law. Paul talks about that curse in uh, the previous chapter, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Is it not remarkable <laughs> that, again, this providence of God, we're talking about the fullness of time. It was the Romans who invented the cruel crucifixion by God's providence. So that this, which was an Old Testament statement of the Mosaic legislation, could be fulfilled uh, 2,000 years later when our Savior would hang on a tree in order to fulfill the curse of the law. What a remarkable plan of redemption. I want you to be gripped by it. And there, as he was on the cross, he did two things for us by his work of redemption. Uh, and we get both of these factors in the Old Testament. Redemption delivers us from the curse and bondage of the law. But redemption also brings us a restored inheritance. Two quick Old Testament examples. Uh, in Exodus chapter uh, 31, uh, there's the story of the man who has a bad ox. And he's told, you keep your ox locked up. And he's negligent about his ox. The ox gets out. And it kills a person. And because he'd been warned, he now is responsible and he is to be put to death. But then we have this statement where God's preparing us for redemption. Exodus 21, 30. If a ransom, that's a redemption price, is demanded of him, then he should give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. And so one could pay and be delivered from most of these death penalties. Not murder, but from other death penalties. One could pay and be delivered from them. But the re redemption price delivered then from the bondage and the curse, punishment of sin. And that's a great part of what it means that Christ has redeemed us. That's the basis of our justification. You see, and Paul puts that together in Romans chapter 3. That we, by God's grace, are justified through redemption offered to God, the propitiation. His wrath-bearing, justice-satisfying death. But there's one more thing, you see. Not only did Adam bring us under this curse, Adam lost the family farm. Adam lost 
the inheritance for us. As I said, we are now children of Satan apart from Christ. And so there was another part of redemption that we read of in Leviticus 25. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relatives sold. And of course, that was fulfilled in that beautiful story of Ruth and Boaz, from whom uh, David comes, from whom the Messiah comes. But you see now why he took a human nature so that the nearest kinsman and that word kinsman is redeemer that our kinsman took to himself a human nature in order to pay a redemption price a redemption price that would restore the lost inheritance which brings us to what we'll see in a moment on our adoption but now we talk about the necessity of this why did he have to be a man well, I've already pointed to that because we were the sinners. We are the descendants of Adam. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. We had to have a fit substitute. One who could stand in our place completely in his human nature and suffer in body and soul in paying the redemption. But a mere man could not do that, could he? If there were one perfect man like Pastor Groff, and he offered to die for Pastor Piper to pay for my sins, uh, he, he would go to hell and I would live. You know? Uh, because he's, he's finite like me. And so we also needed a, a substitute who could pay a sufficient penalty, an eternal penalty. A penalty paid to an infinite God. And thus it was only in his divine nature, in the one person, that he then could satisfy eternal, infinite wrath for all of his people to deliver us from our sins and to bring us unto God. And so in Acts 20, 28, Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Because of the perfect unity of the two natures, what the person did, the divine nature did as well. He couldn't die, but he could atone in perfect union. And thus we had to have an incarnate Savior. And this is the wisdom of God. And it was an eternal purpose, you understand. Which brings us then to this purpose. We have a second purpose clause. So the first is that he was born under the law, so that he might redeem those under the law. And then it's actually the same grammatical form, so that we might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons. God has sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then an heir through God. This is also quite Remarkable. God could have delivered us from the punishment of sin. He could have given us eternal life. And we would uh, have enjoyed uh, a measure of bliss uh, forever. But that's not what he wanted. You see, he made Adam and Eve to be a son and daughter. And when they rebelled, as I said, they went into the dark kingdom. But it's God's purpose to have out of his created human beings, sons, and daughters. And so it was never just his purpose to justify us, 
But it was to purchase for us adoption. To come and sit us at his table. And to say to us, I am your father. And you are my daughter. And you are my son. The short of catechism explains to us what happens. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number. And given a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Now ladies, don't be offended that God calls you sons. It's actually a great honor. Because at this time, in Roman law, the son, the adopted son was the heir. And so the reason Paul uses sons in connection with adoption is simply to point out that everyone whom God adopted, every child for whom Christ died, every man and woman in him is an heir of God. A joint heir with Christ Jesus, which he goes on to say then that you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. And so we now have entered not just at the family table, but we have the complete family inheritance, which is spelled out for us in uh, confession. You know, it's interesting, very few of the Reformed confessions even talk about adoption. You read Calvin. I read Calvin through the Psalms every year. Almost, almost in every Psalm, Calvin talks about our redemption as being the adopted children of God. And the institutes are full of this as well. And, and it was then really recovered by the Southern Presbyterians and then the Scots. But chapter 12, all those that are justified, God vouchsafeth, that means guarantees, in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption. By which they're taken into the number. It's a set number, you know, it can't be broken, must be fulfilled. And enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. We heard in baptism, have his name put upon them. Receive the spirit of adoption. Have access to the throne of grace. With boldness are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Are pitied, protected, provided for chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So that's the inheritance. These are the privileges. Coming to God boldly in prayer. Uh, provided for, pitied, protected, chastened. Heirs of a promise that cannot be broken of eternal life. And so Paul is saying to them, don't, don't go into slavery. Don't place yourself under the bondage of man-made regulations or of old covenant ceremonies. No, live in the full reality of your sonship. But then look at the seal of our adoption. In verse 5, because your sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his sons crying out, Abba, Father. Do you see the parallel? God sent forth his son. God sent forth his spirit. Again, showing the equality of the spirit with the son, the son with the father, the trinity. Eternally preexistent being sent forth now. And sent by Christ as he tells us in the gospel of John to take Christ's place in our hearts. The Holy Spirit right now, if you're an adopted child of God lives inside of you in a personal manifestation. 
Thus the Godhead lives inside of you in a personal manifestation. Sealing to you the reality that you are a child of God. Crying out, Abba, Father. He's speaking that to you. In the other passage, you speak that to God. And you look at God as Father because of this glorious adoption that is sealed to you with an unbreakable, eternal seal. The Spirit of Christ indwelling us. This is what Advent's all about. It's about justification. It's about adoption. It's about sanctification. But I want you to think today what this means. Forget about Christmas and think about the Advent. God sent his son that you might become a son of God through the perfect work of his son. And he sent the Holy Spirit now to indwell you. My friends, revel in the reality of who and what you are in Christ Jesus. Don't try to seek your self-worth in the places the world does. In your appearance or your gifts or your positions or whatever. Listen. Nobody in the world, the greatest kings and presidents, the most wealthy billionaires, if they're not in Christ, they don't have what you have. <laughs> you're a child of God. There's your worth. And that's how you're to think about yourself. Always. And that's why we mourn our sins then, because we love him. And that's why we read in 1 John, we love him, we, we, we want to please him. Just as little ones, you forget about that when you're teenagers, but you'll, it'll come back to it. But when you're little, you want to please your parents. We want to please our Father. Some of you might wrestle with assurance of salvation. I'm sure, a group this size, you do on and off. Here is the key to assurance. Your adoption means the Spirit of Christ is indwelling you, testifying to you through the promises and the evidences of grace in your life that you belong to God. And he actually seals this in some mysterious way on your heart, so seek that from Him. Now perhaps some of you here today have not experienced this reality. Some of you might be cultural Christians uh, because you live in the South. You think because you drink Southern water and live in the South you're a Christian. Well, it ain't so. Okay? Even Northerners can be Christians. <laughs> but the reality is some of you might be cultural Christians and you really like this time of the year. But you see what this is, Advent's all about? It's about your sin. And if you die in your sin, you're going to hell. But God so loved sinners that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Have you claimed that promise? It's once again being offered to you by the Holy Spirit. To take hold of Christ. Repent of your sin. Come to God through Christ Jesus. Yes, for justification, but for adoption, and for then God changing your life to actually make you really like His Son, with whom you'll live for all eternity. Let's pray. Holy God, we, we marvel at this plan of redemption, that you could have had a children through Adam and Eve before the fall, but it was always your intention to have children in this most remarkable manner. For there's no more wonderful manifestation of your glory and of all your attributes than exhibited in this method of salvation. Oh Lord, we are so thankful 
that you've made us sons and daughters. And we're thankful that you've included our children in the family. You've placed your name on them. Now, Lord, we plead with you, give to them what you have promised in their baptism. Let not one of them ever turn away from you, Lord. But may the Spirit who indwells us take hold of them, give them new hearts, and give them faith when time comes for them to express it. But new hearts now, Lord, and by your Spirit dwell in them. And Lord, if there are those in our midst, whether they're young people or adults that have not taken hold of Christ because they have assumed certain things about themselves, Lord, we pray that even now the Spirit would drive them out of themselves into the arms of the Savior. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.